Once again, good morning, AC3. I'm really glad that you're here. And so we all know about Easter or Christmas uh, Scrooge, right? I mean, that's just so iconic in our culture. We've probably seen a million different stage or movie renditions of that. And uh, we decided we'd just whole flip this whole thing and, and show you Easter Scrooge to set up the fact that there is a story of a real Easter Scrooge. So there is a non-fictional story of a Scroogey guy who really didn't get Easter. And uh, I'll just begin to introduce him to you. His name was Saul. He was born in a little town in what is today southern Turkey, but then he was raised in Jerusalem. He was raised as a Pharisee. Now, uh, we, we know the word Pharisee, right? And it's kind of become a byword in our vernacular. If you call someone a Pharisee, you mean that they're uh, uh, self-righteous, they're hypocritical, they're sanctimonious, they're holier than thou, right? That's what a Pharisee means. But actually, this was a real-life sect of Jewish uh, men, and what they were, were were strict adherents to the oral traditions of the Jewish fathers. So they were just their whole life was the writings and the traditions. And that was what Saul was about. Now, I want to do some comparison between Saul, this real guy, this real Easter Scrooge, with the Scrooge that you're familiar with from Dickens' classic tale. In fact, Dickens describes Scrooge in the original Christmas Carol with these words. Check this out. He says, Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained and as solitary as an oyster the cold within him froze his old features nipped his pointed nose shriveled his cheeks stiffened his gait made his eyes red his thin lips blue and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice and so we all have a picture of this guy right and there's the latest uh, that was the jim carrey animated deal a couple years ago we all have a picture right of what ebenezer scrooge looks like um question do we have a picture of the original Easter Scrooge Saul? Do we have a picture of what he looked like? Well, he wrote a lot of stuff. Surprisingly enough, we don't find any physical description in his writings about himself. But someone a few years later claimed to have a reliable tradition uh, about what he looked like. And so Saul being raised in the first century, this is a description from the second century about what he probably looked like. A man small in size, bald-headed, crooked thighs, meaning bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows meeting. That's like, you know, unibrow, right? Okay, so runs in my family. All the villains have unibrows, right? And rather long-nosed. So if you just get a bit of a physical description of the original Easter Scrooge, you realize why we made this comparison between old Scrooge and Saul the Pharisee. Now, most importantly and more reliably, we get a description of Saul about, his, about himself, about the character of the man. And so we get it from the extensive writings that he made about himself. And um, as, keep in mind, he was a young, religious, Jewish zealot. So here's what he writes about himself. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Now, let's define the word zealous. Like, how zealous was this dude? I mean, he was extremely zealous. He will describe it in another writing. He says, look, if anybody has confidence to be um, uh, confident in their own efforts before God, he says, I have far more reasons to be confident in myself. I was a Jew of Jews, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew, if ever there was one, a member of the Pharisees. 
And then he describes what they were that demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Here's how he describes himself morally. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So Dickens' description of the old uh, Scrooge was self-contained, right? Well, there's a description of the new Scrooge, right? Or the old uh, Easter Scrooge saying uh, he had complete confidence in himself, self-contained, self-assured. We probably would say arrogant in terms of how he stood before God. But notice, interesting, also a zealot. So you have all this confidence before God, you have religion, and you have zealotry. And in our own day and age, that's a bit of a toxic mix, isn't it? Sometimes you put religion and arrogance and zealotry together, and what does the combustible mix uh, lead to? Violence. And uh, Saul will uh, admit this. Saul was also a zealot, and sometimes it leads to violence, which he confesses right up front. He says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man so Dickens Scrooge we know he loved to oppress the, the 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 lower people right the people from the lower classes he was oppressing Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim well likewise Saul but the unique um, target of his harassment were people who were followers of the way that was the way in the first century you were described if you were a follower of Jesus you were called a follower of the way capital W so he had a unique problem with Christians, these early followers of Jesus. In fact, one historian will say that he was present at the martyrdom of the very first Christian martyr, which the guy was named Stephen. And so there they were. People were uh, stoning Stephen for blasphemy because of his view of Jesus. And, and there was Saul holding the coats of the people who were picking up rocks and killed the man in the street. That's Saul, our original Easter Scrooge. I mean, friends, that's worse than Scrooge. That's worse than Scrooge. Here are more words that he uses to describe himself. Insolent, ignorant, unbeliever, worst of sinners, the least, unworthy. Like I said, a real-life Scrooge who happened to have deep-seated hatred for this little religious sect in the first century, these followers of Jesus. Now, the question is why? I mean, why was he so angry with them? The reason is, is this, men and women. It was because they made monstrous claims about their, their leader. What they said was that their revered leader, a popular young rabbi, a guy named Jesus, born in Nazareth up in the northern regions of, of uh, Palestine, and they basically said that this Jesus, this son of a carpenter, this sort of blue-collar guy, this sort of traveling itinerant preacher was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. That's a pretty monstrous claim, right? I mean, if you're a Jew living in the first century, you've got high and beautiful visions of how when, when the one, the chosen one comes, he's going to fix everything. He's going to transform the whole earth. And this son of a carpenter was that one? No, no, no. That didn't, that didn't match. It didn't match how Saul thought of it. Remember, Saul is zealous about the law. He knows every prophecy by heart. So he's living during this time. He's obviously alive when Jesus is going about doing his thing, when Jesus rose in fame. He was also around when the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, finally had had enough of this guy, and they finally said, we're going to put an end to it. They brought him up for trial, and um, on a day just before Passover, one Friday afternoon, they sentenced him to death. Why? Why? Because his claim to be the king of the Jews, his claim 
He didn't flinch when asked, are you the son of God? Didn't flinch. It is as you say. He said. <laughs> this was an intolerable heresy. It was worthy of death. And so they put him to death and swiftly. They handed him over to the Romans because the Jews couldn't uh, execute capital uh, crimes. And um, so they, the Romans, under Pontius Pilate, strung him up on a tree and had him crucified. So where is Saul during this whole thing? Well, we don't know, actually. Here's what we do know. We know that he studied under a very famous Jewish rabbi, a guy mentioned outside the Bible, a guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And so here's what we can assume. We can assume that Gamaliel's rising pupil, his rising star, uh, would have given his approval to the verdict against Jesus. But here's a problem. It, it really didn't go the way the Sanhedrin were hoping it would go. See, in the first century, if you look into the history of this, men and women, you realize that there are many upstart groups. The Jews hated being under Roman oppression. They were an occupied territory, basically. And so there was constantly new rebel groups that were popping up all over the place. And then a band of bandits would basically come together and they'd uh, do some terrorist activities and they'd try to overthrow the oppressive hand of Rome. What would happen from time to time when they jumped up like that, the ruling class would jump down on them, kill the leader, and everybody would scatter. Well, they figured the same thing would happen with this Jesus. But after his execution, his followers did not go quietly into that good night, as many other upstart revolutionary groups had. Why not? Well, they were making claims about Jesus that were absolutely astounding, and they can now be summarized into four sentences, four phrases, really, that now have become the doctrine of all of the followers of the way for the last 2,000 years. And this doctrine was spreading like wildfire. It was not so much doctrine as it was history. They were claiming these things happened, crystallized in four ideas. It was simply this. Christ was crucified. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ was seen. That's it. That's Christianity if you want to boil it down into four phrases. And that doctrine was now spreading like wildfire as if it was true history. I mean, as if it really happened. Now, this infuriated the Sanhedrin, infuriated the Sanhedrin and their lead bulldog, our Easter Scrooge, Saul. Why? You've got to ask yourself why. I mean, why not live and let live? Why not let a little band of crazy religious people just believe what they want to believe and do what they want to do? I mean, after all, they just maybe believe in a few wacky things. The only thing they're really guilty of is loving their neighbor really relentlessly. At this point, that's all they were guilty of. You have to understand the context. Understand Saul's background as a zealous Pharisee. He loved the law. His, the law was his life, okay? So if what this upstart group, the followers of the way, were saying was true, if that was true, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and that meant he had ushered in a new radical era of grace. And that meant that the era of the law was coming to an end. And well, for a guy who based his whole life on the study of the law and the prophets and the traditions of the elders, you can imagine that was deeply unsettling. But more unsettling than even all of that was simply this idea that he could not imagine in any universe where Messiah would be crucified. Just couldn't imagine it. And so he devoted his life to exterminating it. So what about the resurrection? I mean, you could say maybe Saul, I mean, he must have heard about this claim of Christ was 
uh, buried, Christ was raised, they, he surely heard that. Yes, he, I'm sure that he did. And wouldn't that claim have substantiated this idea that he was the long-awaited Messiah and that he had ushered in a brand new era of grace and the kingdom of God? Well, you can imagine that Saul probably accepted the standard explanation. And the explanation of the empty tomb amongst the elite was simply that the disciples stole the body. So, resurrection, bah humbug. You can be certain that's how Saul looked at it. So, in the words of the original Easter Scrooge himself, he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail, having received letters from them, that is the Sanhedrin. I was traveling to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. He was dragging people in front of the court so that they could be imprisoned and or executed. So question, how do you reach a Scrooge like that? How do you reach a guy like that? I mean, he's so set in his idea about how God is. He's so set and dogmatic and harsh that he thinks that he's doing God a favor by oppressing and eliminating people with a different view. I say again, men and women, boys and girls, how do you reach a Scrooge like that? Well, if you go to the Dickens classic, right, how do you reach the original Ebenezer Scrooge? He must have a supernatural visitation. And in fact, the same is true in the case of the real Easter Scrooge. Luke records it for us three times, and here's Saul in his own words. He says, I was traveling and near Damascus about noon. An intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. <laughs> that was his moment. I mean, his party saw the light. This is an interesting little bit of the story. His party saw the light, heard the voices, didn't understand what was being said, but this was an extramental experience. It wasn't, it wasn't just happening in Saul's head. It was happening outside his head, and the people were witnesses of this encounter, whatever it was that was going on. And that was the moment that Saul, our original Easter Scrooge, that was the moment he broke fell to his knees because that was the moment he saw the thing he could not believe. And that was that Jesus had risen from the dead. He saw the risen Christ with his own two eyes. Well, that was like all three ghost visits in one, I'll tell you. And that was also the moment, AC3, that he changed. That was the moment that our original Easter Scrooge changed. I mean, darkness to light. Original Easter Scrooge, now Easter believer. Now, you've got to ask yourself a question. What are the reasons to believe that that actually happened? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? And I think you should seek answers to that. If that's a stumbling block to you, you say, really, did that happen? No more fundamental question than that. What are the, what are the reasons to believe that Jesus himself rose from the dead. Are there any good reasons to believe that, or is that just mythology? Maybe that got layered onto the Christian story uh, centuries after the fact. Those are good questions, and that may be a common story, but I think you'd find there are very good reasons to take with dead seriousness Saul's account of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. 
By the way, that's a great question for investigation. Starts April 14th. You can come ask questions like that. Are there any good reasons? But here's a fact. And this is accepted by every New Testament scholar, by the way, liberal, conservative, uh, all across the spectrum. If you're Bart Ehrman or if you're Jerry Falwell, everybody believes this. You can just take this to the bank and say, this is history, this happened, okay? This is what happened. Everyone agrees. That there was a guy named Saul. He was a dyed-in-the-wool Pharisee. He was a rising star in Judaism. And suddenly, in a lightning turn, he started traipsing around the Mediterranean telling people that a guy named Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. That's a fact. That happened. The Christian church, in large part, sprung from that fact. Now, what accounts for it? What accounts for it? Well, you could say these five different explanations for why this guy experienced his turnaround and started telling people the things he told them. That Christ has died, Christ is buried, Christ is raised, and Christ was seen. Yeah, uh, there's all sorts of explanations, but here's the one that Saul, the original Easter Scrooge, gives us himself. His own account of the change is the resurrection. That's it. That's his explanation and his grand vision on the Damascus Road. The risen Christ met him, and the risen Christ had power to change him. I mean, changed him, AC3. Changed him, turned his world upside down. Changed his theology. Caused him to see things in the law that he had never seen there before. Changed his view of God. Changed his character. Changed him so much, they changed his name. So no longer did they call him Saul. Now they would call him the Apostle Paul changed him inside out and this Paul this this transformed Scrooge was a truly different man remember that earlier account of his physical appearance I read for you I didn't read the whole thing because the post resurrection Saul now Paul was described not just for his crotchety look in his unibrow he was also described as a person who looked quote full of grace at times he seemed human, at other times he looked like an angel. To look into his face was to look into the face of a friend. I mean, that's a, that's a remarkable turnaround for a guy who murderously pursued uh, people to death. I mean, that's an amazing thing. And, you know, one of, one of my uh, favorite passages, this guy who, by the way, wrote half the New Testament. He turns around to write half the New Testament was so eager to tell us exactly what accounts for the great change in him. And he'll tell you in 1 Timothy, his great words, his explanation. He says, I used to scoff at the name of Christ. I hunted down his people, harming them in every way I could. But God had mercy on me. Oh, how kind and gracious he was. He filled me completely with faith and the love of Christ Jesus. This is a saying and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I was the worst of them all. Do you, do, you, do you detect a note of sweetness in that? A humility that has descended on a formerly hard-hearted Scrooge. I mean, it's an amazing transformation. And he tells you what's at the heart of it. He tells you what did it. Finally, he says, the resurrection. I mean, that's an amazing Scrooge story right there. It's a story of transformation, the complete overhaul of a man. And he tells you it was the grace of the risen, living Christ. Now, friends, 
if Christ is alive today, then he has grace for you to make a change in whatever is scroogey in you. Now let me ask you a question. Would you be honest with yourself this morning and admit that there's Scrooge living in you? There's a place that's hard-hearted and cynical. There's a place in you that is still selfish and cynical and narcissistic. It's still about you. There's a place that's lonely and unloved. There's a place in you that reacts out of not knowing your place in the universe, not maybe knowing your own purpose or meaning. There's a place in you that's maybe a little bit too much arrogance and bravado because it betrays an insecurity about who you are and where you stand before God. Is there a Scrooge living in you? And if so, I want to say to you that there is power today in our original Easter Scrooge, in his story, that is available to you, that your, your Scrooge might be transformed. It was true of me. I mean, I don't speak this just because I accept Paul's story. I accept Paul's story, but I accept it in part because it was, re, it was repeated in my life. I was a 15-year-old Scrooge. You say, 15 years old? Seriously? You can't get crusty and old at 15. But you know, friends, at 15, I can identify all the seeds of Scrooge in me. I had the unibrow uh, going on. But there was more than that. There was a flaming selfishness and narcissism, a cynicism. Uh, there was a, a, a snarkiness and an arrogance that was seething just below the kind of glossy exterior of my life. And then I had my own encounter with the risen Jesus. No, it wasn't an extramental thing. It was inside my head. It was inside my mind. And so it couldn't have been experienced by you in that moment, but it was supernatural. And it was the first moment when Jesus finally made sense to me and his grace was poured out on me. And by faith, I received it. And I felt I was a new person. I was, felt like everything was changed inside was really interesting confirmation of this. I come back from that experience, and it was like three weeks later, my sister had been gone on a long trip to the Philippines, a mission trip that she had. She came back, hadn't seen me in almost a month. And after a week of being home, I remember this. We were getting out of the car, and I think it was Easter, getting out of the car at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And um, we, we got out, and I, I don't know what spawned this in her, but for some reason, that was the moment when she turned to me, and she said, Rick, what happened to you? You are not the same person you used to be. And I just knew in that moment that the Scrooge in me was broken. Oh, was I still a lot of the same things, still wrestling with the same characteristics? Some of those things linger still. But I know, fundamentally, men and women, I was a new person. And the Scrooge in me was broken. The Scrooge in me, in you, can break as well, AC3. If Jesus is risen from the dead, that power is available to you, and you can be a new person. There can actually be change. People say these days, hey, do you believe people change? I don't think anybody fundamentally changes. How, how many times have you heard that? I don't believe that. Not for a second. I believe people can change. I believe you can change. And by the power of God, you can be a different person. You can go from Saul to Paul. I believe that about you. And I believe it's true because of the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that grace has been made available and he's ready to meet you on your own Damascus Road because that Jesus is still arresting people by his grace and calling them to a new life and changing their trajectory now and forever. And that amazing grace available 
because of the risen Jesus. So we're going to sing now and just going to celebrate this fact to wrap up our Easter 2015. So will you join me in song? Why don't we stand together? We've got two courses we want to sing as we wrap up today and celebrate the power to change.